Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on KSCW as part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series. We are talking today to Dr. Hakim Olushei about his amazing life as an astrophysicist, cosmologist, inventor, educator, science communicator, actor, and author of the new book, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. You're going to love this interview, and you're going to love Dr. Olushei's new book, which is amazing. Before Einstein published his theory of special relativity, Isaac Newton's view from centuries earlier was accepted as fact that we live in a clockwork universe where time and space are constant. What Einstein first imagined and what quantum physics later formulated is the possibility that we operate in a multiverse, potentially an infinity of universes where different versions of our lives are playing out in ways both imaginable and unimaginable. This is fascinating stuff. And our guest today, astrophysicist Dr. Akim Olushei, dives into this mystery and why the universe we perceive is not the universe that actually exists. In trying to understand our deceptive universe, Dr. Olushei examines space-time, the illusions of mass, the large-scale structure of the universe, dark matter, and dark energy. But please don't let the quantum physics element here sound too deep because Dr. Olushei explains the ideas with simple ease so all of us can understand. Plus, we talk about Dr. Olushei's coming-of-age life, overcoming obstacles like crime, poverty, addiction, even work as a janitor, all to succeed beyond expectations, including the fact that Dr. Olushei recently served as the Space Science Education Lead in the Space Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C., where Dr. Olushei provided strategic leadership and management for the Directorate's investments in science education and communications. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science series on KSCW, Dr. Akim Olushei. Hakim Ulushei, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, you know, I got to tell you, I'm excited to talk to you. We're going to talk about your new book, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars, which is just getting excellent reviews. I got to highly recommend it. I'm excited to read through it, too. But let's start kind of right at the start. You're going to be speaking at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up. Tell us a little bit about your presentation. And, you know, we're all on Zoom these days. Tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience, too, maybe. Well, so... I have been studying this universe since the day I was born, (laughs) right? I I felt like I was born with curiosity and also a cruel joke because I only have a hundred years to to figure out everything I can figure out and then I'm gone, right? So I felt like when I began to get my advanced education about the universe and began studying the universe, that I was surprised that it's all an illusion in a way, right? The, uh, the, the universe hides from us its secrets so cleverly, and, but humans are incredibly clever. So we found out how to figure things out. And so what we've come to learn is that there is the reality reality But then there is our brain 
and our sensory systems, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouths, and how we interface with reality. And there's a difference between the two. The reality that is created in our minds is not the reality that we see in physics. All right. So help me understand this. So so give me kind of the lay explanation of, of how the physics world, because I've read that you say the universe we perceive is not the universe that actually exists, kind of, you know, kind of what you've been saying here to me. But help, help me understand this. How does that how does that kind of work? Well, for example, there are a lot of components of the universe that are completely invisible to us. So passing through you, me, everyone listening to this right now are all sorts of elementary particles like muons, neutrinos, and perhaps even dark matter particles, potentially things like axions or weakly interacting massive particles of various types. Um, And again, there are certain things that are emergent. For example, if I have a string that's infinitely long, say a guitar string, right? I can pluck it and it turns out that a note of any frequency can live on that string. However, if I actually put it on a guitar and I lock it down on two ends, now it can only play a single note. Well, it can play higher notes, but it will play the fundamental tone primarily. So now something has emerged. In one case, you just had a string that can carry any frequency. Now you have a G string, for example, or a C or an E or a D or an F, right? Um, and so in much the same way, we're, we're, we're typically thought of as mass. We're matter. We have mass and we take up space. Well, where does our mass come from? Our mass comes from the atoms that make up our body. And The vast majority of that mass, 99.9% of it, is in the protons and neutrons. And what do we learn about protons and neutrons? Oh, they're made up of these three quarks. Well, those three quarks only supply 1% of the mass via what we normally think of as mass. The rest of the 99% is confined energy. So Einstein taught us that Energy displays all the same properties as mass. It bends space-time in the same way. And if you have, for example, pure energy, say photons that have no mass, trapped in a box that has no mass, then you will get out mass-like properties if you attempt to accelerate the box. It will will resist your acceleration, uh, just like a normal mass does, exhibiting inertial mass. So those are just a few examples but, it, it, you know, even our bodies appear to be solid, right? But the nuclei that make us up are hundreds of thousands of times their own size apart from each other. So we are empty space, but yet we appear solid, right? And it's only because we're so far away on the length scale of atoms that we appear to be solid to ourselves when in fact we're not. Is this what leads us to this notion, which I've, I've also read a little bit about, but I'm not quite sure I fully understand, but is, is it this in the same way that we exist or, or, or operate, I suppose, in what you refer to as multiverses and potentially kind of an infinity of universes that maybe have different versions of our lives that are playing out in ways that we might imagine? Or Well, you know, that that is one of the difficult questions of physics because sometimes the mathematics tells us something, but we've not actually observed it in the laboratory. So we don't know exactly how to interpret it. And one of these is a mini worlds theory of quantum mechanics. And if it's taken seriously, then one idea 
is, it's a natural conclusion, is that at every decision point in the universe, new universes branch off. So at this point, in a 13.8 billion year old universe, consisting of who knows how many decision points, there could be an infinity of universes if that is a true reflection of reality. But we don't know. Because ultimately, what it boils down to is observations and measurements. We don't accept this true anything until we observe it to be true. And so this mini universes theory needs to create predictions that we can go then and look for to say, if this is true, then this must occur. And now I'm going to go and look to see if I see that. That, for example, is how we came to understand the Big Bang model of the universe. Right. It's not that we were able to create universes in our laboratories. Instead, we were able to make predictions from this idea that the universe was once much denser and hotter. And then when you go and look to see if those things that you predict are there and you find that they are, then that gives you great confidence in your model. We're not there yet on the mini universes theory. Well, you've you've just had this wonderful background, and and I want to I want to talk a little bit about that. In particular, you recently served as the space science education lead in the uh, space mission directorate at NASA, headquartered in Washington D.C. And you provided some leadership, some management uh, towards space education, and or in particular science education and communication. So I wonder if you tell us a little bit about that experience, and and in particular what you learned about science education for children in public schools, because I think science is, we need it in our lives, and it's a good place to start with education. And so what did you do there, and, and what's kind of the future for science education? Right, yeah. So one of the things that um, was happening at the time I joined NASA is there was a redesign of how the Science Missions Directorate interface with learners of all ages. And this goes from children through adults. And so what was happening in the old model was 1% of every budget for a mission would be dedicated to what's called education and public outreach. And, you know, these were done by the mission teams themselves. They weren't necessarily the experts on how to do things best to get the learning outcomes. Um, So in the new model, what we did is we took that same amount of money, which turned out to be about $45 million. And instead of taking that 1% of the budget and giving it to the mission teams who are already doing science and having them do education and public outreach on top of that, the new model creates these 25 grants or created for what we call STEM activation. So STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And it's very broad. Um, But the key thing that I was to do was to bring in a level of rigor to this effort that matched the rigor of the scientific uh, efforts that, that, that are taking place. So that means that you justify what it is you propose to do using evidence-based arguments. And then there's a program of adaptive management and evaluation that is highly rigorous in order to make sure that uh, the um, goals are being met and that you know the people's money is being well-managed, right? Um, and now what I did learn that's really interesting is that, you know, certain things I didn't anticipate learning, like when you hear people say reduce government, I didn't know 
it didn't occur to me that, oh, NASA is government. So one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, it's pretty much a skeleton crew of scientists working at NASA headquarters making the whole thing run. Right. They are way overworked. And, you know, these are people that, you know, just like patriotism can lead you to join the military, it also leads people to join the federal agencies. And so for these scientists, they've pretty much given up their research career to serve. But then, you know, the the public, um, how do you say, uh, conversation talks about bureaucrats in a negative way and things like this. And I'm just here to say, let's bring some reality to this. These people are patriots who are dedicating their lives to serving their country, and they are doing the best job that they can, and they have very high morale and not the highest of pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's put it that way. Yeah, They're hardworking people. They've got uh, great integrity, and, and they're doing some really fascinating things. And, and you have, too. We're, of course, with Hakim Olushai. Hakim Olushai is going to be at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here on July 12th. Hakim Olushai has written this wonderful book, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. Hakim, congrats. The book has recently been optioned for a movie. Gosh, this is just great stuff. It's getting great reviews. I have to say it, it's heartbreaking and, and it's hopeful at the same time. And you're a, you're a man who, in the book, you, you, you made sense of the world by asking questions. So what, what's been the most challenging question that you've had to answer about about your life you know you 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 bring up a great point because of all the challenges in life dealing with oneself is perhaps the, the greatest challenge um and when dealing with oneself you know i once heard someone say that the job of parents is to give their children a childhood that they don't have to get over <laughs> so you know i i was not fortunate to have one of those kinds of childhoods so i had a lot to get over including uh, my education, my formal education and my education about self and dealing with self. Um, and it and, and that's what this is, is a story of. You know, I sort of had, you know, we, we talk in the modern world about code switching, right? That's a guy like me who's from a particular community and you have a particular way of speaking. But then when you go into the uh, business world, you speak in a different way, in the way that is consistent with the business world. Well, I had, I was doing code switching long before <laughs> I, I was a professional and there was the normal me who is a happy go lucky guy who just loves to read and, and gain knowledge. But then there was the me who learned to survive in a harsh world, right? Who learned to wear an armor of defense that included, I better punch, punch you in the face before you punch me in the face, <laughs> right? Type of thinking. Um, and that's what happens when you're traumatized and scarred, right? You, you live a life where you're on the defense. And in some ways, for me, there was also a bit of self-destruction built in, right? Um, but eventually, I learned to get over these things uh, through the help of a lot of good people. And that's what the story I tell. It's not just, oh, look how amazing I am and what I did. Rather, it's, Look how messed up I am (laughs) and look how amazing all the people around me were. And yet I made it this way because I had a lot of help. And these other people, you know, they they made the life that they made for themselves, but they didn't happen to be interested in physics. Uh, And so, you know, you see that I am you, you are me. And at any turn, life can go in one direction or another. 
and I'm really lucky to have ended up where I am today. Well, well we're, we're lucky to be talking to you, and, and we're grateful for all that you've, you've done. And you give a lot of credit to your mom, I, I, who was a reader. Your mom was a reader, too, enjoyed reading just like you. And I, I'm close to my mom even to this day. She's 91. She's a reader. I know what kind of a positive intellectual force that can be. And you, you cite your mom as being one of those intellectual forces on your life. But your family wasn't an easy one necessarily. Gangs and bootlegging crime, uh, marijuana operation. Was economic study, or excuse me, let me go back and ask that differently. Was academic study your way out of that life? You know, because you did, you did end up moving around a little bit and you attended a lot of different schools. Yeah. Yeah. Moving around a little bit is, is again, an understatement. I moved every year until, uh, the eighth grade to ninth grade transition. And many times it was several times in a year. In fact, at the very end of that, when I was 11 years old, there was a 16 month period where I lived in nine different households and attended five different schools in three, in three States. And, you know, I'm talking South central Los Angeles, Houston's uh, Third Ward and South Park communities, New Orleans Ninth Ward, New Orleans East, you know, tough, tough areas. Um, and, you know, I never once thought to myself, I want to get out. You know, I, I never, that's not how I, I looked at the world. It was more of a positive forward perspective. It was more of like, what do I want to do next? And, you know, we live in a world where you have to make your own way, you know, and I'm from the, 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 the deep South rural America where they were really, you know, work ethic was everything. Right. And the biggest insult was he don't want to work. So, you know, I moved out of my home when I was a month after graduating high school and never looked back, but that doesn't mean that I was well cared for. Right. It was just that I felt like I needed to do it on my own. So first I went into the military and then I came out and I went back to Tougaloo college, but you know, my first two semesters, summers, I was homeless. Um, you know, that doesn't mean I was living on the street. You know, I was couch surfing and sleeping in dorm room floors and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I had to go through a lot. And really, it was very immediate for me. I want to live indoors and eat. And I did not approach life with, oh, I know what I want to be. This will be cool. I would like to be a physicist. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, okay, I can't get a job. Oh, if I go to college, then I'll have a dorm room and a meal plan, right? Now that I'm in college, what will be my major? Oh, physics is easy for me because I did so much as a kid. So I'll make that my major, right? It wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have a grand plan. Uh, you know, I, I, I just was a kid who fell in love with the universe and solving problems and learn how to work hard. And other people led me to the path that I eventually found myself on because it wasn't a path that I even knew existed when I was young. Yeah, you really you really persevered and that, and that comes across in, in your story. And really, you know, you have master's and doctorate degrees from Stanford. So Dr. Hakeem Elishie, that's who we're talking to today. But school wasn't really a given. You did hang in and you fought hard for it. How did how did university life shape you and kind of help you get back on track? Well, you know, the, the, the thing about university life is that's the time of being a young adult, right? This is when you first leave home. And I don't know about everybody else who's listening to this, but I was really mad when I left home. I was like, nobody told me it would be so difficult to keep a roof over my head and food in my belly, you know? And, you know, I, I was taking little you know, minimum wage job. So, you know, I started at three thirty-five an hour, then it moved up to $4 an hour. 
And, you know, it, it, I read you were a janitor at one point, too, at a hotel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did every kind of, you know, I was an auto mechanic. I was a janitor. I, I hold pulp wood. I, I was a Navy SEAL, not SEAL, excuse me, seaman. A, uh, you know, I, I shoveled dirt at one point. Um, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, and, and to be honest with you, sir, I'd be a janitor again tomorrow. If that's what it took. Right. Uh, whatever it takes the will to survive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I went through really, really tough times. Um, but you know, I, I, I also have the attitude of, so what, you know, you could be born into any set of circumstances. And so being born in the United States of America, uneducated and, uh, you know, from a family without education and money, Oh, it gets a lot worse than that on this planet. <laughs> and I've seen it. So, you know, my position is whatever situation you're born into, you got to make the best of it. Right. And, you know, had I been born a couple hundred years earlier, things could have been far worse for me. So, you know, I have an attitude of gratitude and hard work. Arthur Walker II was another person in your life, like your mom almost, this wonderful, positive, intellectual force. Arthur Walker II passed in 2001. But maybe tell us a little bit about him. How did he shape your life? What advice did he give you that you're, that you're now actively sharing with young people in, in your life? You know, it's funny because when it comes to advice, there's <laughs> there's only one thing he said to me that I remember like that. I was like, oh, that was really good advice. And what he said to me was, don't ever allow yourself to become indebted to the bankers because they won't ever let you out. So I've had a virtually debt free adulthood for that reason. And as I have uh, watched, you know, the people around me go up in debt and crash. And I was like, oh, good advice. Art. Right, thank you. Um, but, you know, he, he he showed me a different way of being was the most important thing. So Art was one of the first three African-Americans to get to go into professional research the, uh, in astrophysics. The first was Carl Rouse. He got his Ph.D. in 1956 from um, Caltech. And then Art Walker and George Carruthers both received their Ph.D. degrees in 1962, I believe. Art went on to um, first he, he went in after graduating, he went to the Air Force where he did space based research with them. Then he went to the Aerospace Corporation and finally he became a professor at Stanford University. And his first graduate student was a lady named Sally Ride, Americans first woman in space. And I was one of his last because right after I, I graduated, he passed away. Uh, within a year, in fact, and and we were both we were very very close, but you know Art was a tough guy. He he did not play. He was serious about his business, and that's why he was so successful. But at the same time, he had a heart and he loved to help people, um, and he was very patient and understanding. Which so he was exactly what I needed because I needed patience and understanding as well as toughness. Right? I needed to be, um, to to be held to the to the standard of the, of the highest heights of, of, of scientific research. And that's what art did. Uh, he shaped me and helped turn me into a true scholar and gentleman. So final question for you, Hakeem Olujayi. Uh, you, you talk about this a little bit in your book. You talk about race and uh, the racial divide. And so maybe leave us with thoughts on how does racial divide play out? We've had a we've had a different, a, a, just a different difficult year. Uh, yeah. and lots of, lots of issues. Um, yep. Some of those are still at the forefront of our societies. You've had guns pulled on you half the time. I'm sure it was racially, you know, related. Yep. 
It was. Yeah. What advice are you giving to young people about about this subject, and and how do we kind of deal with that and come together a little bit as a racial society? You know, this one is really tough. It really, really is tough because I think that what we're up against is, you know, to be a civilized human being, right, means to sort of disregard your animal nature and make rational decisions. And if you look at the history of humanity, you know, we don't like difference very much. You know, we, we, we draw these, um, distinctions on the most shallow of, uh, circumstances, right? And typically your biggest enemy is your nearest neighbor. Okay. So this is deeply ingrained in us as a species, this fear and loathing of difference. But now let's take it to being rational beings. Okay. Here's the thing. Our greatest superpower as human beings is our ability to work together. And when I look at humanity and I see humanity's potential, I feel like, you know, if we trusted each other and we were all trustworthy and we took away things like greed and the need for power, we'd be Star Trek tomorrow. <laughs> that is our <laughs> capability. That is, that is our, mm-hmm. that is what we are. However, there's too much dirt in the gears because there is greed and, and all these other human proclivities that, you know, prevent us from being that. Um, and so the best thing is to get to know each other well and be open minded. One of the best things that happened to me was traveling. So as a scientist, you get to travel. So at this point, I've been to over 40 countries in the world. Every trip was free. And I did not see my own country clearly until I saw it from an outside perspective. And I came to realize, first of all, how well organized, rich and luxurious America is. <laughs> if you think, you know, Americans are complaining, oh, the country's falling apart. Really? Go look at the other 200 countries and see how falling apart America is in contrast. Right. It's 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 quite the opposite of that. Um, and, you know, while we are having internal strife and struggles. You know, it's it's really unnecessary. We could we could work together, be one big human happy family, and you know conquer the universe. <laughs> and I hope we get to that higher understanding at some point. Because right now, you know, what I know, you know, I often say that you know, you mentioned race with the guns. I I, I tell people, you know, I'm lucky because I've had guns pulled on me by black guys and white guys. I've had I've been abused by black police, white police, and an Asian policeman in uh in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I don't have any illusions that there are, you know, this group is better. You know, every group, no matter where you grab them from, are going to have great people and awful people. And, you know, I find personally that I like working with the great people and people I can work with. So that's what I do. I ignore the rest and work with those whom I can work with and, you know, take care of business. That's, that's what I'm about. Getting it done, making it happen. Well, we certainly appreciate you giving me the chance to work together a little bit. It's been an honor to get to know you here today. Uh, Dr. Hakim Olushayi has been our guest. Dr. Olushayi is going to be at the Smithsonian Associates coming up July 12th. Hakim Olushayi is author of the new book, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from Street to the Stars, getting great reviews, just highly recommended to everybody. You are uh, an astrophysicist, a cosmologist, an inventor, an educator, a science communicator, author, actor, doing it all. Congrats on your, on your life and all you're doing, and thanks for your generous time with us today and for being, being so inspirational, too. 
Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you and I appreciate your audience for uh, taking the time to listen. My thanks to Dr. Hakim Olusheyi. Dr. Hakim Olusheyi will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates July 12th. It's coming up right around the corner. We will have links to more details on Dr. Olusheyi's presentation at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience at the Not Old Better Show. My thanks, of course, to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support our show. And remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on KSCW. Thanks, everybody.